0: All I ever wanted was to pick apart the day and put the pieces back together my way. That was Aesop Rock, I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Geffel M930 via the Avidus MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the Moon Cabin. And it is a very exciting day for me here on the Midnight Disease because we are talking to Mark Pagan. Mark Pagan is the creator and the host of the beautiful, and I don't use that word casually, the beautiful podcast, Other Men Need Help. Mark is a writer, a storyteller, a filmmaker, a documentarian, and in many ways, Other Men Need Help is all of those things. It is Mark's deeply personal, deeply felt marvelously executed, truly delightful investigation into the riddle of masculinity. What I want you to know, if you don't know Other Men Need Help, is that I'm very hesitant to try to describe the show too much because it sort of defies characterization, but broadly speaking, it is a series of reported audio essays which means you will hear Mark's voice and a chorus of other voices interrogating the, as Mark has referred to them, struts and performances of masculine existence in all of its ridiculousness, in all of its insecurity, in all of its buffoonery, in all of its occasionally weird glory. And Mark interrogates himself, very deeply in this show. And I don't want that to come across like he's asking you to listen in on his therapy sessions. It's not that at all. I just mean that he is unafraid to admit that he cannot figure this business of being a man out. And he's bringing us along on a journey that isn't just really entertaining. It's important. It's important work that he is doing on this show. And not for nothing, because I would hate for anything that I am saying right now to make this show sound like vegetables or some kind of social justice mission project. First and foremost, Other Men Need Help is engaging storytelling, glistening writing, playful sound design, and best of all, laced with surprises in every single episode. It is, as you will hear Mark describe in the episode, a sort of audiographic novel that talks about the mystery of manhood in a way that you just don't hear anywhere else. And it is such a refreshing break from the ways that masculinity is often discussed. And if you are a man, if you are a person who is friends with men— If you are a person who loves men and is occasionally slash often maddened by men, (laughs) this is a show for you, and now would be a great time to discover it, because Other Men Need Help has just released its fourth season today. As you hear these words, if you're listening on the day the show comes out, season four of Other Men Need Help is available in your podcast player of choice, and I was so grateful That Mark, who is also, I feel very fortunate to say, a dear friend of mine, was kind enough to stop by the studio, as you will hear him say, actually literally stop by. We got to share space, which is so rare in podcasts these days, that you actually get to sit down right just a few feet away from the person you're talking to and make eye contact and really talk about the stuff. And that is what we got to do today. I hope you enjoy this episode one eighth as much as I enjoyed having this conversation, and even more than that. I hope that you will listen to Other Men Need Help. I don't feel this way about many podcasts, but this one is a gift. And you're about to meet the man who wraps that gift and delivers it with love to your ears. You're listening to The Midnight Disease on WALT. This is not uh, necessarily part of the show, but something that you would appreciate perhaps, which is that uh, I went out to dinner with a friend last week and he had this really cool leather jacket on. When I walked up to the restaurant, he was standing outside and it just jumped out of my mouth. I was like, dude, that's a really cool leather jacket. And he was like... Thanks, man. I I have wanted it for like years, and I finally got it. And he told me all about it. And then we sat down at the dinner. We were eating and stuff in like an hour. And he was like, "Hey, I just want to say thanks for thanks for noticing the change."
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. this is this is the stuff. That's the that is. I think those are the sorts of things. I'm going to make a huge leap right now, but Mm -hmm. I think those are like the deathbed memories. I love that leap and tell me everything. I think I I don't think it's... I, there's the life flashing before your eyes, but the life flashing before your eyes element are these details. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just, there is a... If there was an Amelie capturing that mm-hmm. moment and <laughs> observing it, then we would have seen sort of like heart emoji. It's something like yes. there would have been like an because Because what you gave there was such a gift... Uh, on both sides, you know, both um, in terms of both steps, you know, you saying something initially, as well as you reaching out, and um, and he wanted that acknowledgement. I think that acknowledgement is really important. We all, we all want to be observed at different points. It's like got a new jacket. Like, yeah, this is a new. This is an identity. This is a this is a push to show up in the world looking a certain way. And you saw it. That's got to feel huge. You know what? It it made me think about. This is a leap too, but
0: I, I it feels like a leap. You. Would be willing to make, which is, I don't know if you had this when you were a kid, but when I, my parents used to go out to dinner with friends and my brother and I would stay home. And for so much of the time they would be gone. My brother would be like reading a book or doing whatever he was doing. And I would just be stewing and thinking like, what is the point that you get to as an adult where, because I was still at the point where I was like, I'm never going to finish my homework. I just always have homework. What is the point that you get to as an adult where the day ends and you're done with work and you put on nice clothes just because it feels good to put on these nice clothes? And then you have friends who you don't see during the day because like all my friends, it was like totally school based. These are just friends that you have in the world. How do you maintain the connection with these friends? And then you have money and you go to a, a restaurant. You, you don't make the dinner. You, they, you go somewhere else and they serve the dinner too. What is that? That's like the great mystery. How do you just do that? And I think there was something about seeing my friend in this jacket. Mm. As we were about to go into this restaurant, That was. it's like a little tradition we have every year we go to this steakhouse. And so we were about to like spend a goodly amount of money on a dinner and he showed up looking just like the best. You could tell he felt like the best version of himself. And we were about to go do this thing. And it was just this little moment of like, we did it. We cracked the mystery.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you, what, when was a time in adulthood where you... Fine moment. It's happening. <laughs> it's Thursday. <laughs> I am wearing slacks. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, I guess that's one of those times. That's what, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Last week. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: In leather. In leather. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we cruised right past what is usually uh, my, well, the first opening is Mark Pagan. Welcome to the Midnight Disease. Thank you. It's really good to be here.
1: Literally here literally here yes sitting in front of somebody in a microphone it feels like it feels like it's been a while and it's sam it's sam dingman so i'm i'm really delighted to be here i this is no bullshit the
0: inspiration to have these kind of conversations comes out of so many of the conversations that you and i have had over the years and so wow. to get to have one and record it um i've been really looking forward to this thanks i have to um the first question that I, I like to ask is if you think about this phrase, the midnight disease,
1: what are your symptoms? The current one is a lot of Gmail messages to myself. Um, Amazing. Which I Nobody has said this yet. <laughs> and it's it's frustrating because I'm often out or I'm in the middle of a conversation and I want to do the thing where I'm like, hold on. Just hold on a second. <laughs> And two things, like, I don't want the person to think I wasn't listening to them. Also, to take out your phone and, you know, it's considered a very obnoxious thing now. But it's where inspiration shows up mm-hmm. during the during the day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could just be a word. It could be a story thought. It could be a quote that I heard somebody say on the street. And it is it is sort of an observation record, self-observation of thoughts as well as things that I'm seeing in in the world. I will leave here today and before the day is through. There'll be an email that I send to myself and it'll say, you know, thoughts about loyalty, knight's chivalry, <laughs> turn that into an animated blah, blah, blah You know, it'll be something like that. It <laughs> may <laughs> just be stream <extreme laughs> of consciousness to me, but it'll make sense. Even if I read it, it, that's the thing. Even if I read it a year from now, I will remember where I wrote it and what the context was. Yeah. So this makes me think of so many things.
0: One, just your thing about not wanting to say to somebody, hold on, I need to make a record of what has just transpired. I relate to that so much because I think in particular, when you do the kind of work that you and I both do, which is fundamentally derived from real life interaction, that is actually gold. When you have an interaction like that with somebody that creates insight into something that you have been struggling to articulate in a piece you're writing or, or something like that, and then somebody says it, or you have an interaction that is demonstrative of that, and if you could cite it, it would be perfect. That That is the gold. And if you let it go, it's gone. And it's such a struggle in that moment to have to balance against, do I introduce into this person I'm talking to's awareness the idea that my full attention is ultimately with my work? <laughs> 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 or do I do I let my work suffer for the sake of this interaction?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's sometimes, I mean, sometimes I throw it up to the creative gods and I'll yeah, go, if yeah. this is an idea that's lingering, it'll linger mm. and it'll show up. But the one thing that I have I have learned to do is like, you know, you just find your creative etiquette mm-hmm. and you go, I have to use the bathroom real quick. <laughs> I got here. Did you have to use the bathroom? And this wasn't the case, but, um, and then I'll go in the bathroom and then just, you know, yeah. he said this, you know, that sort of thing. And then again, again, it'll go into my email. Um, And I think as well, my email is like a, a good enough archive because that is a place I go to multiple times a day. Yeah. And that will live there. The other thing that
0: you're, answer about Gmail made me want to ask is, what is your practice of return to those messages that you send yourself? Is it, because I'm tempted to think it gives yourself a, like a a stored repository that you know you can easily query. Mm-hmm. Like if you sit down and you're writing and you're like Knights and Loyalty, didn't I send myself a note about right. that at some point? You can just search your Gmail for Knights Loyalty and something will pop up. Is that the value of it or are, is there some more active, regular re-engagement with, okay, here are the notes I sent myself today. I'm going to transfer these to some other place.
1: The The pandemic really messed up a lot for all of us, but I'll speak specifically about schedule and routine mm-hmm. now. I think there's there's still a ripple effect of routine that I'm trying to get back to. And one of those, and this is answering your question, it's just one of those was leaving. One of those was a routine of going somewhere. Um Our work cultures, I think, mercifully have changed a lot. But quite often, like most people, I was going somewhere. And number one, that offered observation. Number two, it offered a sort of morning, maybe a lunchtime routine and an evening routine. And now that timeline is very amorphous. Mm. So I would have my observations and I would put whatever that was, whether it was an internal observation or oh, those two teenage girls are eating french fries on the train. That's very endearing right Mm -hmm. now. There's something about it. I got to write it down. Um, And I would jot it down in my Gmail or whatever it was. And then I would come back in the morning and it was basically taking it from one technology to moving it over to analog. So I would, in the morning when my brain was fresh... I would say, okay, girls eating french fries. And so I would go and put a dump on paper, Mm -hmm. on physical paper about whatever that was and try stream of conscious, whatever, like no judgment, and also using paper so I could draw pictures or do whatever. In the morning, it's just such a beautiful time. Your brain is really, really, it's just, it's in such a wonderful state, in my opinion. And then at the end of the week, I would take all of those analog writings, and then I would I would put it in, into a folder, usually a a Google Drive folder or something like that, mm-hmm. of observations on the subway mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. mail bonding or whatever it is. And I would then translate what I wrote down into something that could be a little bit more edited, uh-huh. so that it could have. And then and then from there, I have this archiving system. That seemed to work really well. And it was the... That's a, that's a beautiful system.
0: And just to make sure I'm tracking yeah. it technically. So you would go... You would almost use these emails that you had sent yourself the previous... So it's the morning. Yeah. You're sitting there with paper. You would use the emails that you had sent yourself the previous day as prompts, basically. Writing prompts. You would write these things down. And then at the end of the week, you would have these analog free writes, which you would then
1: how would you get them into google drive would you then type them up that's the other thing is that i think the the tra- for me what seems to work is really the translation to translation to translation okay because when you're your brain is making at least my brain seems to be making more connections with each of those transfers yes. and then obviously that happens with editing yeah you know when you're making those stages of of editorial work on whatever it is it could be a book could be a podcast episode you are making links by doing those sort of translations mm-hmm. of like, okay, this paragraph or this portion here structurally didn't work. Why isn't it working? Um, and so that have that free time within one week of like a mini observation or a mini story was really lovely. And I think as well, using a pen or pencil and just doing things like the circling mm-hmm. or
0: mm-hmm.
1: whenever something feels right, I put stars next to it. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I put it into a document, uh, I will bold it mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. when it's a sort of freeform document. So something about those stages of translation that by the time it would get to a Google document and you know May Fourth, two thousand twenty-three, girls eating French fries, mm-hmm. it would have gone through a few translations. So that I've I've already distilled it to the point where I understand closely like what it is that tickled me there. Yeah, um, doesn't always work, but I those folders and documents that i have in my g drive i go back to them and i go this is so honest some Mm -hmm. of the stuff like this is so pure and it it has been the building block of of things like other men need help it's Mm -hmm. been the building Mm -hmm. block of other projects and unfortunately it has been a routine that was disrupted during the pandemic and i've had a hard time easy enough here to say just do it um for my own reasons it's it's been hard to come back to that routine. it's routinely. very difficult. it's very difficult
0: and and you're so right that an imposed structure and set of travels in your day is invaluable for that kind of thing, yeah um, because otherwise, if all your time at home is theoretically work time and also theoretically free time, you have to choose. At all times, <laughs> which one it is, and the there's a there's a choice fatigue I think yeah. that that creeps in one of the reasons I was particularly interested to ask you this question is because of a memory I have, and tell me if it's a false memory, but I remember us talking once about you keeping physical journals and that you had a somewhat regular practice of this is what I remember. That you would finish the journal, you would attach a label to the spine that gave the date range of the journal, and that you would wait to do that until you got to the last page of it, and that that you had a somewhat regular practice of going back in to the journals to just read what you had written. Not necessarily to use it for anything, but to just remind yourself what was in there. Did I make that up or is that real? No, that's correct.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think one of the things with doing that has at least has been liberating for me is saying it's okay to go back to the same themes. Yeah. It's okay (laughs) to do that because our life is defined by a few events. And I think it's okay to spend the rest of our lives trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And whether that is very 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 unconscious or very conscious for us as mm-hmm. both as human beings as well as as creative people i think it's fine i think there's something really liberating at saying i'm focusing a lot on this and that's okay and i in my work i will find ways to make sense of that yeah and both the journaling as well as the collections that you know when i have when i go into google drive and i have i see all these folders and subfolders that I've created. And then I see that kind of like, they're all, you know, after a year, they're all revolving around male interactions. Uh-huh. Creatively, that's pointing to something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is where I will get the most satisfaction out of telling those stories. Yeah, And so, again, going back to, to this system, like other men need help was, it was a tremendous, tremendously invaluable to go. And like, not only do I have a lot of stories that I can call from my life or stories that I would like to source, but I can go, this is what I, obviously, this is what you want to talk about mm-hmm. because this mm-hmm. is what you're thinking about. This is what you're, this is what, at the end of the day, it wasn't the fact that, you know, somebody gave you a nice birthday cake at the office. It was the fact that your colleague had, you know, had sneezed all over himself. And <laughs> you couldn't get over the fact that he was feeling really awkward about it and was apologizing, but mostly only to men, you know, or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, it's not the fact that the, all my colleagues made this nice birthday cake. I will remember that. But what I remember is this awkward moment, there's something there. It's just been the best for me. It's yeah. been the absolute best and best, best practice, best, best process, continuous process for mulling, calling, mulling, calling, mm-hmm. calling. Um, I'll say stories, but yeah. anything creatively.
0: Mulling and calling,
1: I mulling suppose. Mulling and calling, yeah. So we met
0: through live storytelling mm-hmm. originally. I know that immediately before that you were doing a lot of filmmaking and I have an understanding of you that you've always been a a writer and now you are also a podcaster and journalist. Um, Do you identify as a journalist? I don't want to put that on you if that's not a word you wear. (laughs) No,
1: no, no. It's it's funny you're asking me that because um, I, I don't remember exactly what you said, but years ago, <laughs> we we had you when Family Ghost was moving into its second season. Yes. You and your team did a talk over at Dweck Center at the Brooklyn Public Library. And I don't remember if it was and I moderated it and I don't remember if it was I me that asked you something that led to this answer or if it was somebody in the audience. But there's something something along the lines of of either what format is this show mm-hmm. or what do you consider and I am happy. I'm fine with the label journalist but I there's i i lean more towards documentarian yeah in terms of the which is different which is different and i work i think the majority of my work is within the realm of journalism Mm -hmm. um the majority of the work that i've been working on recently but something like other men it's essayistic documentary work Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. and if anybody puts the label of journalism on it i'm fine with it and as well if anybody Says that's not journalism for X, Y, Z reasons. I go. You are right too. Yes. <laughs> you are correct, <laughs> and I never claimed it was. Yeah, and I never claimed it was. But I'm I'm fine with with journalists. I um uh yeah, journalist documentarian. I I I go both ways. I guess yes. my. Overly sweaty answer about it has always been.
0: Um, I think of myself as a, an artist who uses the tools of journalism to uh, tell stories, um, yeah. and I don't even know if that even means anything. But um, what you've been talking about so far is documenting, documenting through journaling, through emailing yourself. Um, when did you? When was the first moment of I'm going to write it down? If you recall
1: the memory that I have, I was actually in Northwestern Minnesota, and it was the first time in my life that I decided to quit my job because I got into a residency. And the residency was in a small town called New York Mills, about an hour away from Fargo. And I went there. And the reason I got into this residency is because I had just made a short film called Raymond and Lena. It was a fiction, fictional short film, but based on oral histories that I'd done translate that into this fictional piece. And I got there because I had put in an application saying, I'm going to come there and I'm going to write the feature length version of this script, a fictional version of this script. And I got up there and I didn't have writer's block. I just had writer's block for this. Ooh, And I found myself sort of like the... Plug had gotten pulled out. I'm gonna use. I'm not sure if it's dike or whatever it is. The plug had gotten pulled out of the dike. The water was spilling out. Yeah, the creative water was spilling out of whatever was holding in the water. But it wasn't for this. And for some reason, when I sat down, they provided you with a house Uh that you could stay in, and then a studio. So every day, I'd stay at the house, go to the studio, go back and forth doing work at both. I'd show up at the studio, have this big table put down either my computer or a journal or whatever it is to start writing the screenplay. And literally, it was almost like I was possessed. My hand just kept writing down embarrassing things that happened. Almost like, I'm not Catholic, but it was almost like I was walking into a church and then walking in and talking and confessing. Like a confession. Confession. Uh And um, I just, I can't say what happened, but I think it was a certain, there was a certain, I'd gotten so fed up with trying to tell stories that were fitting a square peg into a round hole. It's just like, Mm -hmm. this doesn't feel like me. And maybe it was the freedom, maybe it was the age, but the first thing I wrote down was, almost like I was saying it to myself for the first time, I got a really bad wax after I lost my virginity, (laughs) and I tried to lie about it to my girlfriend. And That's the first story I ever heard you tell on stage, is that story. And that's the first thing I wrote down there. And... I just started laughing to myself. I'm like, "Why?" and I just kept going for some reason. And I was I was really trying to write this heady cerebral powerful quiet drama about a grandfather and his granddaughter and I'm proud of the short film that came out of it, but I I watch it now and I see parts of me that are very much in there. Yeah. And then I see like I see somebody who's still trying to understand how to interpret how I want how I want to talk about the world. Yeah. Um, and that's the moment that I remember, and that really, it changed everything, mm-hmm. my time in Minnesota. And um, I wasn't really doing anything with audio storytelling at all. I had bought a Zoom recorder, I think. Yeah, I owned a Zoom recorder. I listened to podcasts. I listened mm-hmm. to public radio. But I decided that month to apply for the This American Life mm-hmm. The fellowship, fellowship? Yeah. The fellowship. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing about mm-hmm. writing for audio or anything like that. But there was something around me as a consumer, as a as a as as an audience member at that point as well, yeah. that was really, I found myself really, really gravitating towards a nonfiction style. There's so much media that I consume for escapism. Mm-hmm. And then there's so much media that I consume for understanding. Yeah. For the artistry, as well as like the sort of understanding the world. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to make. So can I ask, what year would this have been? This was 2000, this was fall 2012.
0: Fall 2012. Okay, because just in the spirit of what you were saying about themes that recur, you, I was just listening to an episode of Other Men you did where you start by telling this story of coming into an awareness of yourself as a person who had body hair and lifting up your pant leg to show it to a girl in class. This is like the lead-in to mm-hmm. another Men Need Help episode that was released in 2018. So six years later, this initial spark is still something that you're turning over and processing. And now it has found expression in this Other Men Need Help episode, which ends up being about all kinds of other things. Um, Just what what a beautiful concrete illustration of what you were describing, that these impulses come forward in you and you begin to have the awareness that you want to document them. And then you begin to notice that they recur and then ultimately they find their way out into the world through this other thing. Um, The other question I have is maybe a little bit weird, but how did you travel from New York to New York mills, I guess. How did you get there?
1: It's a really happy memory because it really was the first time in my life that I gave in to, I feel like it was the first time in my life that I gave in to sort of a creative call. I was living in DC, so I applied, got in and quit my job. I did not have a car. Mm -hmm. My mom let me borrow her car. You drove? Two months. Yeah. Yeah. Two, I was or two and a half months, yeah. I was hoping the answer
0: was going to be that you drove, I drove. because here's my question. That's a what, uh, like fifteen hundred mile drive, something like that. Probably something like that. Yeah, that's a long drive. So, as you were driving there, do you remember what you were listening to? And second question, because you mentioned you get there and all of a sudden you realize that you're blocked about the film but there's all this other stuff that wants to come out. Do you remember what you were feeling about the prospect of writing the film while you were in the car? Were you in the car thinking, this is going to be great. I'm going to get there. I'm going to write my movie. This is going to be great. I can't wait to go up to this residency. I'm going to write my screenplay. Or as you were driving, were
1: you beginning to have thoughts about like, I don't know if i want to write this movie. <laughs> also one thing that I think I've, I've never admitted about this story, but might add, we'll see what comes out with me remembering. I was sober at the time. Okay. I stopped anything. My partner and I at the time both did. And she had decided, I said, I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to do that with you. And so, I don't know, uh, that was the first time since my college days that I had not put anything other than coffee in my body. Like I'd quit smoking a year earlier. So I was really just, ah! it was sugar and coffee. That was about the only, only sort, of, sort of wild things. And so there was something about that clarity and this time and everything like that, that Driving, I think it was a mixture of excitement, but I had been dragging my feet on writing this thing for a while. Hmm. So if I'm remembering it right, it wasn't panic. It was sort of the closest thing I can think of is when you are in a relationship and you know it's in the back of you, it's like, I like this person. I think this is going to go somewhere. <laughs> I think, I think this, you tell your friends, and like, <laughs> you're telling your friends, your vocal range actually changes a little bit <laughs> versus the times when you are in love. Like, I love her. We had a fight yesterday, but I love her. Like, yeah. I'm going to stay with her. Yeah. You know, we're going to do this thing. But it's like, no, we have a really good time. I get really tight. So there, I think there was probably that that tension there. And <laughs> With the film, you're saying? With the film. Uh-huh. And maybe related to what I was listening. I listened on the road.
0: Can I just say before you get to that, I can't tell you how many times it has come up on this show, this relationship between... Sobriety and true artistic self mm. um, it 's fascinating to me that there is this way in which you ingest these substances that create a perceived lack of distance between you and yourself, yeah, but actually what they 're doing is separating you, and i 'm saying i 'm not a sober person, even though I keep having all these conversations that would sort of point me in the direction that perhaps I should consider it but. They create this sense of like, I'm just me right now. They're, I'm flying. I'm just soaring on, on the true Sam energy that this edible has given me or whatever. When in reality, it is actually imposing mm-hmm. <clears throat> a gap between you and something that seems to want to be expressed.
1: I think for, at least for me at that time, and I'm, I'm no longer sober, I think at least for me at that time, it was a really good, especially going to this world in which I want to believe in me mm-hmm. creatively to have that clarity. It really, really helped. And I, you know, I did the romantic thing for years where I'd sit by the computer and I think sort of like, it's almost like cosplay, like, well, I'm going to pour some bourbon.
0: Yes. Because damn it. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. You know what? You just made me think Is like when you're doing, because I've done the same thing, have done and do the same thing. But I love the way you expressed that. You said, I want to believe in me because when you're doing that the bourbon believes in you yeah the 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 lit cigarette smoking in the ashtray believes in you but that's not you believing in you that's you believing in the image of what you think
1: an artistic you looks like yeah it was it was it was quite a benefit at least for me at that time and i find myself now when i'm doing any writing or anything like that like i i occasionally i'll be a little buzzed or something but i yeah, it was it was a really helpful move for me and mm-hmm. um but I think there was probably a little bit of tension about writing this thing and yep. I was listening to um probably about 10 WTF episodes. Uh-huh. Savage Love. Mhm. There was some This American Life that I listened I re-listened to. Yep. And then I bought myself my mom's car had a tape deck. I bought myself A book on tape, and it was Richard Pryor's autobiography, Prior Convictions, read by Charles S. Dutton. Oh my God. No wonder you wanted to write (laughs) (laughs)
0: stories like that when you got to Minnesota.
1: Yeah. And so I I listened to that. I finished that. I think I finished that when I crossed the state line. And then, just in terms of other things that were in the car, I'm just remembering this. Um, For some reason, Uh, My father died, it's actually 30 years ago this week, and I was 14, and this was 1993 when he died, so even even then, it was pretty rare for us to have recorded archives of our family members. Like, only certain families had camcorders, and only certain families would have maybe an audio recording thing that maybe they would have during a, you know, whatever it is. We were one of those families, we didn't really have a camcorder, and it just wasn't the norm. I had one recording of my father, the one, just one. And it was an audio tape that somebody had given me when I was 14 after he died. And i never listened to it. I'd never listened to it. And I brought it with me in the car and I decided to listen to it. Okay, wait, here's the question. Because you said your, your mom's car
0: had the tape deck. Yeah. Did you get the Richard Pryor book? and then think to yourself oh wait there's a tape deck i could listen to the dad tape or did you think there's a tape deck i should probably listen to the dad tape i might want something else to put in the tape deck after i listen to that
1: <laughs> there's something about it's time uh-huh, uh-huh maybe again with this i haven't i haven't invested mm-hmm. in whatever this next step is it could be a residency that goes nowhere in terms of what the career yeah. trying to build a career or it could be and and that that clarity i think that you get with uh those self investments as well as like you know talking about sobriety and things like that it was just like well let's just throw it all into the pile right now yeah and um i've never done acid but i always part of the reason i've never done acid or like heavy psychedelics is say I have this fear that it'll just unlock something. And then for six, eight hours, it'll be like, I'm losing my mind. I didn't know that, you know, I accidentally sat on my pet. I forgot about that, (laughs) you know, or or something deeper. uh, We are talking about a dead dad. So I'm like, maybe it would unlock something that I wanted to to unlock having acid. So let alone, I felt the same thing about this tape, that it would be like a bad ass. Like I will be unlocking something that I can't put back in. Yeah. Um, You can't unhear whatever. Can't unhear. Yeah. And so that was, I just remember that was, that was another piece of, it was a lot of listening and it was intentional listening. It wasn't just, I'm going to have a mixtape to listen to. It was very, I was very intentionally listening to storytelling, to interviewing, to people Mm -hmm. trying to relate to each other. And Mark Maron talking to somebody, it was a musician. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it has stuck with me that Something about the idea of you just keep speaking to that wound. Like the work is just about continuing to Mm -hmm. speak to that wound. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, that's it, man. Mm -hmm. That is it. Whatever I'm about to do in Minnesota, uh, I will try to do that with lightness and warmth and and fun and humor and all that. But I think deep down, if that is the that should be the mission or that should be the understanding that if I keep going back to a source, that's the reason why Mm -hmm. if I keep telling the same story in different ways, it's okay. That's why I remember a similar moment of,
0: and this is building to a question um, of hearing a musician interviewed who her father was a postman. And when she became a musician, she would talk to him about the songs that she was writing and he would always say, are you delivering the message? Mm. And that she came to understand that what he meant by that was, if you're going to write a song, it has to mean something. So are you delivering the message? Mm. And I, I, I guess when you said speaking to the wound, it made me wonder, just because you're, you're characterizing this trip as a shift away from, oh, I'm going to write this um, fictional film that is based on real experiences, but that clearly inside of you, there were, if I may, wounds that wanted to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that a question like that can also become a benchmark for yourself in your practice. Like, I know that I need to be speaking to the wound, and instead I'm talking to something else. Was there any of that? happening for you, I guess, as you made this journey? Or was it just you sat down at the desk and something else came out because you were so steeped in all this confessional, very real, personal
1: work? I think I it's it's actually interesting sitting and talking about it because putting everything together, it feels very intentionally. There was a, a strange set of events mm-hmm. that happened when I was there, so I put all this intention into the journey into getting there and then sat down and just sort of went with the flow when what was coming out of me mm-hmm. were you know essays mm-hmm. stories and then and then as well I started building something that I stopped working on then but I'm actually coming back to now that was sort of like a fictional version of a family memoir anyway mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's I started working on it then so I started digging into sort of really the first time in my life I started create a fake Not a fake, but a family tree in Mm -hmm. which I was um, even putting family legends. Like we apparently had a ghost that lived in the house. Mm -hmm. I put the ghost in the family tree, you know, doing all of this stuff. And I was really, really intentionally thinking about life. The life was showing up in the work. I was thinking about families, thinking about family members that I hadn't thought of in a while. And I woke up a few days before I was supposed to finish my residency. And I woke up super early, around like 5 a.m. or so. And this has happened a few times in my life where I woke up and I go, something happened. Oh. And I had, I had a dream. I think it was that night. Um, my, we're a blended family. So I have some half siblings. We call, e- we call e- all each other brother, sister. So I'm just going to reference brother, sister. But we had a sister that passed away uh, 10 years earlier. She showed up in my dream. I don't remember the dream. Hmm. But I woke up at 5 a.m. and I went, something happened. It was a few days, a week before I was supposed to leave. And I went to the studio and my brother called me, my brother Ralph, and he said, David, our brother died, got in a motorcycle accident.
0: Oh my God.
1: And I, between the tape, my father's voice, the reflective work, everything like that, like leading David dying in this sort of bookend period, And I don't want to be dismissive of sort of like the powerful family things that were happening at the time say, it was all about the creativity, man. But but there was something, it was just something odd about all this timing because I hadn't done that sort of reflective work in my life, both personally as well as creatively. And what ended up happening was I took Ralph's call and I called him back after we talked and I said, I'm going to leave early. And I have the car and I'm going to drive back to Maryland and I'll be there for the funeral. Like I'm going to leave this residency early. And I got to Maryland and got asked if I would be the one that would take over, that would take the responsibility of dealing with David's estate. And that's what I did. I got the, I got the, the news. I said, not that it depends, but I'm going to hear what happens with this American life. On my drive there, I got notification that, sorry, bud, you are not <laughs> in the fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got to Maryland, went to the funeral, and then said, this will be my next project. Not creatively. This emotionally, spiritually, family-wise, this will be the next thing I work on, and then I'll see what happens. To and, document his life. Yeah, and so I I basically, I worked to sort of, worked on finalizing all his affairs. And it was quite, quite, quite a journey because he was a mechanic in Southern Maryland that had, there's a long, he was, he was somebody that was dealing with addiction and, um, it was a really messy death, but, um, he owed, he had 32 vehicles on his property and I had to spend six months with no titles, barely any titles, barely keys but they Whoa. they were, a lot of these were owned by Southern Maryland dudes that were not too happy to hear that oh. David hadn't worked on them or whatever it was. And so uh, it was a really interesting time in terms of this creative shift in my life. Whoa! And there was no money left over except a very, very, very small amount, a very small amount in terms of somebody's life. Yeah. Um, How old was he? He was 47. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he owed a lot of money to the government, and all this stuff. But I was able to sell a few things. And I talked to the family. I said, "I'll divvy this up." And Ralph was like, "My brother's like, dude, take that money." It was it was nothing. It was a few thousand dollars, and that money was what brought me back to New York. Um, and wow. sort of built the the next stage of the career. Wow, because uh, I used I'd stopped working both before I went to Minnesota. I stopped working because of dealing with his estate. Um, I wasn't working. I was using up any savings. I, I didn't have a lot of money. And then this little pool was what what was the bridge back to moving back here and then focusing on what became of what's become the last 10 years of my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So you asked one question. I didn't realize all of these connections, but this, yeah, I'm, I'm putting it together. That is... You know, you,
0: <laughs> I don't mean to be glib about this, but if I may assume you go on a writer's retreat and you tell yourself it's going to be a life-changing experience. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> it was a life-changing experience. It was, I'm, I might even say going to New York Mills, it was the best thing. It was the best thing. It was the best thing I could, quitting my job, all of this stuff for me at that time. For me at that time, not for anybody else, it was the best thing. The transition from leaving there to working on David's estate, I think even to this day is probably the most important thing I've ever done. Hmm. And it changed my wiring so much. So what do you think it was about the working on these? What was
0: different? What, what, was, what pieces of wire were being, had been connected to other things that became connected to new things, if that makes sense? I have an imagination hearing you say that—that that it's something like all that matters is—is is my art, and transitioning from that to all that matters is taking care of the people around you, or something. That I know that's not probably what it is. Well,
1: it's—it's it's not far. This is heavy, so I—I I do potentially this is heavy. What I'm about to say, so I'm—I'm I'm formulating it. But my—my my dad died when I was 14. I have a very strong memory. He died pretty suddenly. And so we, basically, we all went to the hospital. My mother was already there, got to the hospital. My mom said, and he had been in the hospital for a few weeks, but he was supposed to come out and basically, and said, he's dead. To which we were all like, wow, whoa, whoa, that's, that's not at all what, what we were expecting. Um, and I remember coming home that night from the hospital and my dad was an in international business. And growing up as a boy, I thought there was a lot of prestige in the home. He was in, he, was, he was in the military for 20 years. He was in business. He had traveled. He'd basically been doing a version of diplomacy, it felt like, living in the D.C. area. And there was just all these medals and you know, things like that. And I remember at 14 going, yeah, but the siblings that came to the hospital hadn't talked to him in five years. Hmm. I was starting to have a riff with him. My mom was having, like, mm-hmm. what does it matter? Mm-hmm. What does this matter? And then dealing with David showing up to his house every day in this house that was so dark because it was the house of somebody who wasn't well. Mm-hmm. And it was the house of somebody that was in the throes of addiction as well as whatever was happening mm-hmm. with his mental health. It just, it, and again, it was so sobering, pun, no pun intended, Yeah, with all this to just go... There is a lot of clarity here, both in terms of how I want to communicate what, what is meaningful, how I want to communicate to those that are meaningful to me, and how I want to communicate meaningfully to the work for yeah. the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. Plenty more to come with Mark Pagan on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break You're listening to WALT. this vector of conversation go without asking if you're comfortable sharing. Mm-hmm. What was on the tape of your dad and what was it like to
1: hear it? So I, I decided not to drive. Mm-hmm. I decided I'm going yep. to park. I'm going to park. I'm going to sit in the car and make sure my phone was going have to talk to somebody after this, mm-hmm. this is going to be really heavy. So I put it in, I've been holding on to this tape for nearly 20 years, nearly, yeah, nearly 20 years, 18 years since my dad died. And it was, so it was, I knew it was a, like a conference tape mm-hmm. and he was giving a speech of some kind, uh-huh. but it was, it was in a boardroom. So it was the, I can't remember what those old tape recorders were called, but it was an old tape recorder probably put in the middle of the conference room table uh-huh. and they pressed record. So the audio would be muddy, but you would still, somebody is talking in a conference room, projecting their voice. So you would be able to, to hear it. So the tape started, I rewound all to be, and I started listening and I was like 30 seconds in, I, t- I I ejected the tape and I go, is this, do I have this right? And I put it back in and started listening again. And I go, that is my dad. And my memory, I was just, I couldn't get over how much more nasal his voice was. Huh. It had been nearly two decades since I'd heard his voice. Uh-huh. There were no recordings. There was nothing for me to revisit. So in my memory, it was an adolescence memory of a father, I guess, of like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. it had sort of gotten son, you know, it's sort of gotten like that. And my father had an accent too. So it was like, in my memory, it was this man who doesn't exist. <laughs> but I was listening. It was like, dude has an accent, but it is more nasally than I remember. And yeah. it just—it was a like, I didn't cry, I didn't get emotional. I just sort of guffawed. Yeah, I just my, I just holding my holding my hand in front in front of my mouth, going, "That's what it sounded like." Yeah, that yeah. is. Yeah, that is. It was more an in- interesting observation about what memory does. Yeah, and especially in a world in which we now have immediate archives of all of our lives.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Whether you want to or not, anybody who dies now has some version of audio or visual recording of yeah, them. Yeah. Um, as well mm-hmm. as what we the digital archive that we leave online with social media and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So it's just so it feels like such a f- exotic foreign world in which we had we had such an imagined version of mm-hmm. what people sounded and moved like. Right. And the and
0: and the story lives in the space between the memory and that recovered reality. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that memory. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I have to say, you know, if we were, let's say we had just met and we were talking at a bar and I was the kind of insufferable person that we were talking about at the beginning, I have to say that hearing you tell that story, that's exactly the kind of thing that I would want to write down a notebook and I would be like, I'm so sorry, I just have to write this down. (laughs) Son who lost his father at 14, waits 18 years to listen to a tape, pulls over because he knows he's going to be emotional and gets his phone ready because he knows he's going to need to call somebody, pops the tape in, hears his dad's nasal voice and starts laughing.
1: That's an amazing scene. That's an amazing scene. Sam, you and I I are... I think you and I chase something similar. And I think there's, we have a lot of peers that do the same where there's some element of truth. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, it is, I think you and I, I don't know your creative process and like how you react when you see or hear something that you made. You're in the editorial process and you go, that is not honest. Like what, narratively, oh. what I'm doing here oh, is not true to whatever the story is, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and I, I hear the same, because I would do the same thing too, where it's was like, that is the most truthful thing like mm-hmm. there there is because even even in in sort of even the narrative that i'd created before this happened was like just what you said like put in the tape and just Oh my God. You know, just music and melodrama and then driving, driving afterwards with tears, like re-listening to the tape and just whatever it is. And there are, yes, there are li- moments in our lives where that has happened. But, and to um, extend that further, like
0: driving and listening and like, oh my God. And then you get the email, you get the This American Life Fellowship and then yeah. your whole life changes. That's not what happens. Yeah. You get to Minnesota, you get a phone call, you get a vision in a dream that something's happened. You find out your brother passed away and you have to rearrange your entire life to take
1: of his estate like yeah exactly yeah i'm sorry i cut you off but it's the truth it's the truth that we're after Mm -hmm. i i I think and i think you probably have the same tickle as well when you hear something that just is it's it's just distilled honesty Yes, and it's and it's narrative and 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 i think you and i make sense of a lot of the world narratively Mm -hmm. we make sense and correct me if i'm wrong in terms of how your brain processes things but as somebody who functions a lot Mm-hmm. and story both as a interpersonally as well as in the work that you're doing i think it's a way that you and i process things and and try to find mm-hmm. you know try to find what is true mm-hmm. and try to understand ourselves and try to reach some level of authenticity and i i, I totally agree and it is something like i said i 100% mirror you mm-hmm. like goddamn i got to go to the bathroom now <laughs> to to write this down because i don't want to be
0: rude well, okay, so this is, this is, I think, a perfect transition to talking about Other Men Need Help because, if I'm not mistaken, the opening image of Other Men Need Help is a scene just like the types of scenes that we've been talking about. You talk about seeing a guy dressed super cool out in the street on a, a Saturday night, and he wants to hail a cab, but he wants to look cool while he's hailing the cab. And you say, he puts his arm out, and you say, and it's like a dying plant. It's not eye-catching. Which is like, the, the language there is so perfect. And you talk about, the cabs are just whizzing by, and his girlfriend finally like rolls her eyes, like elbows him to the side, puts her arm out assertively, cab stops right away, and they get in the cab. And you're like, what was that guy doing? And that's, and, the, and the series like begins from there. And if I may... The whole series from that moment is like you found a way to do it. You found a way to capture the, the truth of those kinds of experiences. And maybe it just came out of you fully formed uh, right away. But my imagination is that it was a little bit of a journey to figure out what other men need help wanted to sound like. Um, so if you can remember, how did you arrive at this idea of these like reported essays about mas- the performance of masculinity using your own experience as like an invitation to
1: dive more deeply? Well, going back to Minnesota, like a lot, of, a lot of the genesis of this happened there and it took some time afterwards, but i I was circling in my life around that time with I want to say short stories, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily mean that specifically mm-hmm. with books or liter with with the literature literary form of that. Yeah, I was finding that I was I was really liking essay content. Basically, I got to Minnesota. I was having a hard time with film mm-hmm. because I I just my brain wasn't thinking in terms of a in terms of a long narrative, a fictional narrative, just had such satisfaction from snapshots mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how to translate snapshots. And at that time, I was reading a lot of graphic novels. And there was, I don't mm. know when the when necessarily you can point to the boom, but there was a sort of a personal narrative autobiographical uh, graphic novel boom at some point. And I was reading those things left and right. And some of those, like, have you do you know Jeffrey Brown? Mm-mm. He wrote a a book called Clumsy, and then I can't remember the other one. It was just about a relationship, and they were just one page vignettes mm-hmm. that told the course of a relationship. And it was it was literally like one page would just be kind of like her waking up and putting a blanket over him, mm-hmm. and that was the story on mm-hmm. one page, mm-hmm. and. Him falling for the wrong person told through these little vignettes. Okay. But still showing the tenderness there. And at some point, I can't say what it was. At some point, I decided that this should be told in audio. Mm -hmm. There was a level of freedom. There was a level of anonymity that would allow me, men, to tell certain stories. Mm -hmm. And that anonymity, I felt, was helpful for an audience who I wanted to sit in their shoes mm-hmm. and not have any, hmm. not have any block with yeah. like putting their experience and, and, yep. and the speaker's experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had this idea of the graphic novel and I just did a few steps for- forward and I thought, okay, graphic novel, what like, I don't want, I was just hearing so much material that was didactic. Yeah. Sam, it's Mark here let's talk about met toxic masculinity and (laughs) and maybe we might share a little something Mm -hmm. we're going to get somebody to talk to right and you know we're going to have a serious conversation and it's 90 minutes and that could be helpful for some people I was hearing that or I was just and we're not
0: talking about us of course we're not talking about other
1: other men (laughs) or or it'd be like ah what's up Sam I fucked somebody this weekend this is the fucker show (laughs) like where we fuck people and talk about it. I'm a fucking asshole (laughs) I am such a fucking asshole let me tell you what I fucking did all right (laughs) I had so much, dude, dude, I know you're going to label me for this. And I'm what you think I'm doing is telling some truthful fucking thing. So it's like, I felt like it needs to exist somewhere in the middle there. Maybe not the middle, but I just, I wanted to have just, I wanted to take like the arrogance Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of some of our, everything that I do, that men do. And I wanted to put a little sort of cabaret around it. Mm. And so I thought children's book. Mm-hmm. And what is my soundtrack to a children's book? And also to sort of like male arrogance. It's a sort of 60s Playboy era. Like, <laughs> I'm wearing this and I'm looking like this and I'm shaking my like, why I'm the shit. <laughs> and I thought if we can put that vibe. Silk we, robe, but yeah. like cigarette holder. If we can put that vibe under something where it is straightforward. And if we can put that as a sort of bed and a soundtrack, a literal soundtrack as well as sort of like a yes. tonal soundtrack. Uh-huh. other. Where we're not going, I'm this guy. We're going, yeah, I did that. I got waxed and it sucked. It yeah, will yeah, yeah, yeah. It will allow, it will bring the audience in as well as sort of allow, allow us not to be too self-effacing, but I think allow for that honesty and that truthfulness to come in a way that doesn't feel performative. I'm so happy that you gave that
0: description of the space that you were hoping the show could fill because one of the things that I love the most about that show... Is you gave a name to because there's always been bro culture, right? like mm-hmm. the the welcome to the fuck show. Let's talk about the fucks. yeah, um that has always existed, still exists, and i never I never felt at home in that culture. but it always felt like the only other option was geek culture, or i guess I guess there was like bro culture. there was like serious intellectual mm-hmm. male culture and then there was geek culture and i guess i'm speaking about a younger version of myself i always viewed it as like well i'm not i'm not a bro guy but i'm not a geek yeah. like i'm overwhelmed in i'm overwhelmed in both environments and so what am i and i felt like you gave a name to that kind of man which is the other man <laughs> Um, And one of the ways that you achieve it so effectively is you you begin to do this thing at the beginning of every episode where you say, I'm Mark Pagan, and you're listening to Other Men Need, and then instead of help, you swap in whatever makes sense with the anecdote you've just shared, like, uh, so that you do one about cars and you say, Other Men Need Rides. And I don't know if you intended this to be more than just like, that's like a fun Easter egg for a listener, but it also has this effect every time I listen, like, I, too, am one of the other men who needs rides, needs a ride. <laughs> I, too, am one of the other men who doesn't know how to add up the columns on the spreadsheet. I t- the, all the li- different examples that you cite. And every time you do that, it's this little ping of, like, I see you. I see you. Mm-hmm. I see you. Um, so it's very gratifying to me to hear that that was part of the intention. The other thing I wonder, though, is... Obviously, these episodes are shot through with essays about your own experience. But there's also real reporting. You do interviews. You give historical context where it's necessary and applicable. And they, one of the things I think is most successful about Other Men Need Help is it doesn't feel like a vanity project. It doesn't feel like it's about you. It feels like you are its secret weapon, But it feels like you are talking about masculinity in a very intellectual, dare I say, journalistic way. Investigative journalistic way. You are investigating the mystery of masculinity. And you use yourself as a subject, but it never feels narcissistic, I guess is what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way. And as an initial impulse... I could imagine kind of two tracks, right? One is that you were like, I've got these great stories from my life. What's a good container for them? <laughs> and that leading to this. Or I could imagine you going, I want to talk about masculinity. I want to interview other men about their experience with it. And then realizing at some point in doing that, I ought to give my own story as part of this to ground it in relationship with the listener.
1: Yeah. I mean we were we were talking about something off mic. We were talking about interviewing mm-hmm. and good interviewing. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to you about this idea of not usurping the interview by putting yourself in there, mm-hmm. but good interviews who use it use maybe reacting mm-hmm. by sharing mm-hmm. and building a bridge to both continue the interview but really creating a bridge and building a conversation, like what a real conversation is. There is something that at the end of this is going to be reflective, a, a piece of reflective time for mm-hmm. people in conversation, but primarily for the person that's listening. By doing that, you need to share some of yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't I don't necessarily think that that is the, the answer to all interviewing. And I don't think that's the answer to necessarily like news anchor getting up there and sharing their, their personal life. Although we do have those memes and those moments that things go viral where it's like, wow, this person, I mean, the movie network, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it is yes. is a, is a yeah. whole take on like, yeah. and like, wow, that person actually sharing their truth, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people are reacting to it. Yeah. Jon Stewart breaking down at nine 11. Yeah, exactly. So there, there are, there are reasons, there are times in which there needs to be, there needs to be that separation, but, but that. That humanism, that humanity showing up is very powerful. All that being said, what I wanted as an audience member, I wanted something that did not feel like an acoustic open mic where somebody was just getting up there and putting unprocessed feelings into a song, which I had to go like, oh man, I think you should go see a therapist. Or reversely you are controlling the narrative too much. Mm, mm-hmm. And you're going, I just broke up. She broke up with me. I'm so sad. Yeah. I'm so sad. I'm so sad. But what you're not hearing is that I was really possessive. <laughs> I'm not putting that in the narrative because that wouldn't make a song, which I'm, you know, it's, <laughs> I I didn't want that. I wanted to hear what I wasn't hearing, basically. I think mm-hmm, that's the simplest mm-hmm, way to put it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a host that had, that could talk with some confidence, but as well say, even after all these years, it really sometimes stinks to stand in the line where everybody's taller than you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here's how I reacted to it. Mm-hmm. And I had a real quiet meltdown in the restaurant with my partner mm-hmm. who didn't know. And then I finally admitted to it. And again, those little snapshots, those things we think mm-hmm. about our deathbed, mm-hmm. those little moments, mm-hmm. the sharing those, I think are the most incredible spider webs to yeah. helping people, mm-hmm. helping all of us. In the course of talking
0: about this, you have answered a couple of the other questions I had. That um, One was the aesthetic of the music that you use, because it, I do think it's worth spending just another... I love hearing that what you said is it was an attempt to sort of nod to the 1960s playboy version of masculinity and use it as like, this is a, a recognizable totem that will sort of make a listener, well, I'll just say for me, it makes me feel comfortable. Mm. I'm like, ah, yes, that kind of like, that kind of like musical vibe makes me be like, ah, yes, I know the tone we're in. And then you're obviously undercutting all of those tropes. And it's just so deft. But I think one of the things that's so effective about it is you also tell us that you grew up with the posters of of that world on your wall. So you're it's not that you are making fun of those things. It's that you are acknowledging the meaning that they hold and then addressing the problems with that
1: meaning. It's I'm I'm not I'm not equating other men need help to satire, but it's it's sort of the definition of when satire works, when it doesn't. It's like, oh, these these folks love the source material that they're satirizing. Uh That's why this is so effective versus those that make satire where it's like, you guys are, you guys are, you're speaking from above it. Yes. You're speaking down to it. Mm -hmm. And it is both a, I did not grow up in the sixties, but I think both in terms of television and film and things like that, I did grow up in the Mm sixties because that the James Bonds mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. um the Peter Sellers movies the um even reruns that were on Kojak and the sort of uh the sort of like <laughs> get in the car baby we're going for a ride you know <laughs> like that soundtrack was there and i still love that stuff even you know mm-hmm. i will freely admit how much how much chauvinism exists in a lot of that i i think it's fine to to call from source material that brought you an identity as long as you can reflect on it, yeah, and you can be honest about that reflection, and um I don't think there's anything problematic about the music of the sixties, but I think the material that it is that is the bed of, I am totally fine being very reflective of it and being very critical of it mm-hmm. um and also very fine saying, this is what made me, and mm-hmm. um I will take elements of it. And hopefully subvert it, or or just play out, plain enjoy it. Like yes. let's listen to the jazzy bossa nova moment because this is a dope song. Like, yeah, we should just sit with this for a minute. Well, it, it's striking me in this moment that the moment you had in your dad
0: in in your car in your mom's car with the tape of your dad, that is the whole expression of other men need help, right? You had this memory of your dad as this deep voiced authoritative figure. And you listened to this tape and found out that that was a completely, you had invented that version of him. You had invented the idea that that was a type of authority that you should, that you pined for and you laughed at it, but you also knew that you loved it. And that's basically what happens in every episode of Other Men in Help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is you talk about this youthful perception of what it was to be a man an adult realization that that was based on v- some very flawed logic <laughs> and then you dive into the space between and like create community with other men around the idea that it's safe to admit that this stuff is absurd yeah. um and it's so gratifying every single time i just um i i can't say enough how welcome it feels to know that there is somebody out there who wants to live in that space because I was thinking I don't know if I'm going to express this well and I'm really worried I'm going to come across as insensitive so I'm going to try but I was trying to think like what is the secret sauce of of Mark's tone in other men need help and I think it's that you're not saying being a man is harder than being anything else being a straight man is being harder than anything else you're just saying it is hard (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of the discourse about gender and power dynamics in our world leaves that out assumes that most men wear masculinity like a linen shirt and almost none of us do (laughs) Am I putting something on it that doesn't want to be there? Because I, I want to be really careful about this stuff.
1: No, I think that's really, I think it's apt. Yeah, after making the show for six years, I still have a hard time fully understanding what we do sometimes. It's mm-hmm. just sort of when it feels organic, we just know or I know. Mm-hmm. This is how we would never talk Another other men need help because we don't, if there is any messaging, it should be a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You should come in, to be entertained, and hopefully you leave with some reflection. Mm-hmm. But it should never be on the surface but I do think it is very damaging to not take time to reflect on, I am in the same system of masculinity mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and have benefited from power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have benefited on the need to be in the group
0: mm-hmm.
1: and do, do and say something that I think, like, wear a tank top that has... <sighs> The band Creed on it, because all the guys that I went to college with for a year were super into Creed and say, yeah, Creed or whatever. And if I got documented doing that, you made fun of me, rightfully so. But also, what's your mirror? Yeah. You know, what did you, if, if, you, if you were to sit me down one-on-one, you were to interrogate me, what I'd probably say if, if I could get deep down is say, I wanted to bond with a few people and not feel lonely. Mm-hmm. So I sort of think like, how dare you not spend the time to reflect on that? Mm-hmm. It is lazy. One of my lifelong missions, whether it's creatively, but definitely interpersonally, is to help people, specifically help men deal with shame Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and admit to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that by not taking the time to reflect, we're perpetuating shame. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: we're also not taking ownership of the ways in which we have done things that may be ridiculous to dangerous Mm -hmm. uh, because of shame or ostracization, Mm -hmm. hard word to say. And I'm not saying any of this to make myself feel better or make myself above it all, but that is a, a mission that I would like the show, but just myself as a mm-hmm. human, just what I do to, to do in masculine space. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm now realizing and talking about it this way, I don't want to give people who listen to this the impression, a mistaken impression that they're going to listen to the show and get some kind of soapbox screed yeah um, no i <laughs> it's very experient. it's it's very all of this space that it creates and and meaningful thematic reflection is it's, it's the outer rims of the spider web
1: <laughs> yeah i i love talking about it because the way we're talking about it, because it's not how i talk about the show on the show mm-hmm. or even sort of the the superficial the superficial advertising you know you see the show notes or whatever Mm -hmm. the way a listener would come in but this is how people are responding to the show deep down Mm -hmm. i would hope is is you know the conversation we're having here because it is very meaningful for me i don't know if that's even the right thing to try to make a show that can change the world or or whatever it is but um what i want to do is at least offer my and our guests experiences so that maybe there's a level of reflection that can turn into some healthy changes. I could keep talking to you all day, um, but uh, I think,
0: honestly, the, the, the last thing I wanted to share is, um, you know, you said once on Other Men Need Help that you wish that uh, there was a space for men to be able to say to each other, like, your presence has affected me. <laughs> And so uh, I just want to say to you very sincerely, Mark, um, your presence has affected me. And um, if this conversation was about nothing else, uh, it was a chance to reflect back to you, like, for me at least, how much I value all of the conversations about these kinds of things we've had over the years, and I hope that there are
1: many more. I feel the same way, and I hope you keep what I'm about to say in. It is off the cuff. So I don't know how much you'll need to edit down. One of the things that is, is I have decided is very important to me in life is providing an environment or a space in which people feel heard and safe. Mm. And I have known you for nearly a decade at this point. And you are one of the pillars of providing that space for myself and for everybody I've ever seen you come across. Um, I'm so happy for you, my friend, in terms of where things have gone creatively as well as personally, but, um, that is a, uh, that is an incredible goal of mine in life. And I think you are exemplary at it. And, uh, I want to thank you for Bringing me into your life, bringing me into your studio, and I am always happy to share space with you. Thanks, man. Hug time. (laughs) Hug (laughs) time.
0: disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My deep thanks to my dear friend, Mark Pagan, for joining us on the show this week. I hope so much that this conversation has made you excited to check out Other Men Need Help. If you are not already a fan, you can find the show wherever you are listening to this. Just search for Other Men Need Help. I would recommend starting from the very beginning with that dying plant arm. If you have feelings about anything you've heard on any episode of The Midnight Disease, please drop me a line. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, please say so publicly. Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds. We will be back next week with another great conversation. And I thank you as always for letting your madness ride with mine. And until next time, keep driving, midnight cruisers.